Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Macworld, April 1991. Send in the clones. This is not an April Fool's joke. By Jerry Burrell, Britta Meng, Tom Moran, Cheryl England Spencer, and Suzanne Stefanik. Since the introduction of the Macintosh, people have wondered if there would ever be a Macintosh clone. More recently, the question is when we'll see the first Mac clone. If the late January announcement by two-year-old startup New Tech Computers is any indication, Apple's quiet Macintosh monopoly may soon give way to a noisy host of Mac compatibles. To the Amiga people in the audience whose ears have just perked up, we're talking about NewTek N-U-T-E-K here, not the Video Toaster and Lightwave people. According to NewTek president Benjamin Cho, the Cupertino, California-based company has developed three components, a chipset, an operating system, and user interface software necessary for a fully functional Mac-compatible computer. NewTek's marketing strategy will involve licensing its products to select original equipment manufacturers, OEMs, that will build the actual computers. Equipped with the NewTek OS and user interface software, the new computers should run all well-behaved 32-bit clean Macintosh applications and work with nearly all the standard Newbus add-in boards and peripheral devices available from Apple and third-party vendors. NewTek claims the resulting machines will offer users enhanced features at lower prices than Apple's. We speculate, for example, that buyers will be able to purchase a Mac compatible with a color monitor, hard drive, and a 68030 processor for just over $600. US Allow MFR to direct your attention to the Mac Products USA ad in the back of this issue, selling a Macintosh 2SI with 5 megabytes of RAM and an 80 megabyte hard drive for $3,400 US dollars. And, as was typical with Apple products back then, that price does not include a keyboard or monitor. And remember, the 2SI was part of the wave of low-cost Macintoshes from 1990. NewTek expects OEMs to make the first Mac compatibles available by the end of the year. NewTek's Motif interface will be the first component available to the public, offering Mac owners an alternative desktop environment. Getting working products to market within a year will be a daunting task, given the technical and legal problems facing NewTek. NewTek engineers have spent two years developing an operating system that is functionally equivalent to the current Mac OS, and are in the process of distilling their chipset down to three chips. Testing for software and hardware compatibility is currently underway. Also, like any developer attempting to create the functional equivalent of Apple proprietary technology, NewTek must take every precaution to guarantee that the new code will be significantly different from Apple's. Although NewTek has been scrupulous about following cleanroom techniques throughout the development process, the company may still find itself involved in costly battles with Apple's legal department. See sidebar NewTek's legal strategy. It happened to IBM. Designing a personal computer that is fully compatible with another personal computer is nothing new, as evidenced by the huge variety of IBM PC-compatible computers on the market. Barely one year after IBM introduced the original IBM PC in 1981, several vendors, including Compaq Computer, were shipping IBM PC-compatibles. Compaq had written a legal version of the IBM ROM Basic Input-Output System, BIOS, 
the part of the operating system that allows DOS software to work with the Compaq hardware design. IBM had licensed PC-DOS from Microsoft. Microsoft subsequently licensed its version of the operating system, MS-DOS, to all comers, including Compaq. In 1984, Phoenix Technologies developed and licensed its first IBM-compatible BIOS to Tandy Corporation. Phoenix's willingness to license its ROM BIOS to all prospective manufacturers enabled any vendor to develop PC compatibles without having to write its own ROM BIOS. The number of vendors and PC-compatible computers exploded. In fact, Phoenix claims that more installed PC compatibles contain Phoenix ROM BIOS, over 14 million systems in 1989, than IBM's BIOS. Makers of PC compatibles, however, still had to design their own hardware to match that of IBM. That situation changed in 1985, when Chips and Technologies introduced a chipset that reduced the IBM PC-AT logic board to five chips. Designing a PC compatible became simple. Buy the chipset and the ROM BIOS and license the operating system. Hard Hardware Issues the original IBM PC, XT, and PC-AT were built with off-the-shelf components and chips, easily accessible to any potential manufacturer. The basic component of all Macintoshes is Motorola's 68K CPU family, which anyone can buy. In contrast, Apple's strategy has been to keep the hardware design of the Mac proprietary by constantly replacing off-the-shelf components on the Mac's main logic board with custom-designed, application-specific integrated circuits, ASICs. Macworld's assertion ignores the advantages of custom chips, which can include reduced board size and complexity and reduced component count. Fewer components might also imply lower cost, lower power consumption, and potentially higher reliability. Macworld themselves just described how chips and technologies boiled the entire IBM PC-AT logic board down to just five chips, five custom chips, a dramatic reduction in cost and complexity. So custom chips are not necessarily about making life frustrating and thwarting reverse engineering. According to NewTek, three chips provide virtually all of the logic required to create a Mac-compatible computer. Two of the very large-scale integration, VLSI, ASIC chips, provide a Nubus-compatible interface to a standard Motorola 68K processor. The third handles all the I.O. peripheral control. In addition, NewTek's chipset includes all the logic necessary for controlling floppy disk drives, including super drives. NewTek says that its chipset implements Apple's non-standard versions of SCSI and Nubus and that any computer built with the NewTek chipset will work with most standard peripheral devices, disk drives, printers, network adapter boards, and the like. NewTek has also designed its chipset to support high-performance features currently not available for all Macs. Burst mode memory transfers from the microprocessor, a capability that could improve performance of memory-intensive Mac applications, and direct memory access, DMA, currently available only on the Mac 2FX. All computers built with the NewTek chipset will be able to generate stereophonic sound, something that the classic Plus, SE, and earlier Macs cannot do. All will support color. Finally, the chipset will address up to 64 megabytes of main memory, 
twice that of current max and will interface the CPU to the new bus at speeds up to 33 MHz. Because the Apple Desktop Bus, ADB, is patented by Apple, NewTek will use a standard Intel 8742 chip to directly connect PC-compatible input devices to the I.O. ports of a NewTek chipset-based computer. Will they buy? By developing an operating system, user interface software and chipset that constitute a relatively compatible Mac system, NewTek could find itself in the enviable position of being not only the Phoenix technologies, but also the chips and technologies of the Macintosh-compatible market. The rewards could be enormous. Phoenix Technologies, for example, initially licensed its ROM BIOS to hardware manufacturers for $10 per machine. If 1,000 machines using its ROM BIOS were shipped by the hardware manufacturer, the manufacturer paid Phoenix $10,000. At its peak, Chips and Technologies made $200 million per year selling chipsets. Total the figures, and NewTek's two-year stake in developing the operating system, user interface software, and chipset is more than a good investment, it's a great one. As long as there are no extraordinary legal fees, that is. All of this depends, of course, on whether hardware OEMs are willing to license NewTek's technology. Certainly, the precedent set by sales of PC compatibles is enticing to any prospective vendor of Mac compatibles. IBM-compatible computers from Compaq, NEC, Toshiba, and others currently account for more than 60% of a worldwide market estimated at more than $20 billion in annual sales. Worldwide sales of Macs are currently estimated at $4.5 billion a year, and it's all going into Apple's coffers. Tandy Corporation, for one, has expressed interest in selling Mac compatibles. But hardware OEMs shouldn't overlook other issues. Signing on with NewTek requires considerable confidence in NewTek's technology and its ability to keep pace with Apple's system developments, both hardware and software. Even more, it requires confidence in NewTek's ability to stay in business should Apple decide to litigate. According to Cho, NewTek is willing to indemnify any hardware OEM from possible lawsuits filed by Apple regarding the NewTek operating system, user interface software, and chipset. If Apple does sue, NewTek's survival may lie not in its ability to prove that no infringement occurred, but in its ability to pay legal fees. NewTek investors include Cho, private sources in the United States, and one offshore investor, Lao Yo Su. Su is the chairman of Taiwan-based Banyu Paper Mill Company, a paper manufacturer that had pre-tax profits of over a billion dollars in 1989. According to 1990 Banyu Paper Mill figures, the company has approximately $100 million in available capital. See how they run. Even if NewTek can overcome legal hurdles and sell its chipset to computer vendors such as Dell or Tandy, software issues still present a major technical obstacle. Many software vendors are skeptical that NewTek can deliver on its promises of compatibility. The first IBM PC clones claimed complete compatibility, but more often than not did not run major software packages correctly. The ROM in the early PCs contained only 16K of instructions. Newer Macs use 512K ROM chips. Apple's ROM and its system software are extremely complicated, says Joel West, president of Palomar, 
a vendor of software drivers for printers and plotters. If they've failed to duplicate even one small quirk, then there could be real compatibility problems for the user. Newtech claims, however, that any software that follows Apple's specifications and that doesn't address hardware directly will run on the Newtech chipset. For the user, that means that all major applications, such as word processors, spreadsheets, and databases, should run correctly. Games like Dark Castle won't run, however. These programs frequently bypass Apple's managers in order to eke out the most performance they can. Applications that make direct calls to video hardware, such as HyperCard and Autodesk's AutoCAD, will not work either. And serial printers, such as the Hewlett-Packard DeskWriter, GCC Personal Laser Printer 2, and Apple LaserWriter 2SC may not work. Especially since the 2SC is a SCSI device, not a serial device, Macworld. When I hear mostly compatible, the hair on my head raises, says Dick Ski, president of CE Software. I know how tough it is to keep up with Apple's systems. We follow Apple's rules and regulations when we develop software, and things still break on new systems. Cho admits that NewTek has not implemented all of the Mac's calls. What no one currently knows is which calls NewTek has implemented and what those calls do. If current versions of Mac software won't run on the NewTek chipset, vendors will modify their applications to run, but only if the Mac-compatible machines are selling in volume. For vendors, that means thousands of units per month. But for most vendors, the question of whether or not they will modify software is a moot point. Most believe that Apple will litigate, and that NewTek will not be able to withstand that legal onslaught. At the same time, the software community is pulling for the underdog. Most hope that the appearance of viable Mac compatibles will force Apple to be more aggressive with its technology. Adobe Systems, a company that has felt the sting of clone makers, agrees that a challenger can only be good for the industry. I can speak from experience, says John Warnock, president of Adobe. Clone technology has made us more competitive and made us raise the bar on the level of our technology to stay ahead of others. Apple won't be able to be complacent any longer. If you're wondering why Adobe sounds so nasty about Apple around this time, look up the Font Wars of 1990. Warnock believes that the problems inherent in porting Mac applications to run under Motif would be minor. I would make such an investment, he says. Who's got the clones? Unlike NewTek, most companies have no desire to confront Apple with their own version of the Mac's ROM. Instead, they develop clever methods of working around the legal hurdles Apple has set up. Three such companies, Cork Computer, Hydra Systems, and RDI Computer Corporation, are developing Macintosh compatibility in very different ways for different uses. Cork Computer's Cork System 30 is an inexpensive, $3,000, 2CI equivalent system that requires a 128K ROM from a monochrome Mac. Cork says that it developed a color ROM that adds the functions of 32-bit QuickDraw without infringing Apple's copyright. The market for the product will be owners of monochrome Macs who want to upgrade to color systems inexpensively. RDI's Companion is a $1,700 combination of hardware, including a ROM from a Macintosh Classic, and software that lets Mac software run on RDI's Brightlight, a Spark-based laptop. 
Users will be Mac owners who want a powerful laptop but don't want to leave their Mac software behind. The company plans a software-only Mac emulation that will be faster and less expensive. I believe this became ARDI Executor. Because RDI's Brightlight has its own screen drawing routines, it does not have to emulate QuickDraw. That makes no sense. It must provide QuickDraw compatibility in some form for existing applications, even if it's just mapping QuickDraw calls to Brightlight's own routines. You can't just not answer QuickDraw calls and expect to run Macintosh applications, Macworld. Hydra Systems product is a $1,000 add-in board for IBM PC XTs, PCATs, and compatibles that lets those systems run monochrome Mac software. Hydra's board now requires a Mac ROM chip. Hydra licensed the Xerox Star interface to avoid legal problems with Apple. Of the three companies, only Hydra says it's working on a cleanroom approach to cloning the Mac's ROM. Hydra hopes to finish that project in about a year, after which its board would not need the Mac ROM. Changing Times for Apple For the 10 years that Del Yoakum was an executive at Apple Computer, he had a stock reply to any question about what Apple would do if someone attempted to clone its machines. Essentially, his answer was that the company would spend up to its last remaining penny litigating to protect Apple's technology. Given Apple's past lawsuits, no one doubts the earnestness of his statements. Times may have changed. The attorney who led Apple's Pyrrhic suits against Microsoft and Hewlett-Packard has left Apple. But Apple's most common response to companies trying to clone its hardware or software has been to wield its mighty financial and legal weight against those involved. Digital Research lost the lawsuit brought against it by Apple for infringing the copyright on Apple's interface and suffered substantial damage, although it remains in business. Lee Lawrenson of Digital Research not only believes, but heard from Bill Gates himself that Microsoft nudged Apple to sue Digital Research as a distraction. All of a sudden, we get this call from Apple that, hey, you guys have cloned the Macintosh and are, have stolen all this UI stuff from the Macintosh. And now, just like your earlier story about stealing from the rich neighbor, you know, I said, I know we were stealing, but we weren't stealing from Apple. <laughs> we were stealing from Xerox. And so it was, uh, it was very clear to me that this was not fair, that, did, that Apple should be bugging digital research about the look and feel of Jim. Jean-Louis Gasset, Irv Rappaport, who was the legal guy at Apple, and Guy Kawasaki all came down to sort of tell Little Digital Research how we have to change everything to make it comply so then it won't be too much like the Macintosh. So we sat through the meeting and it was very clear that management had to do it because they didn't have the wherewithal to fight Apple. What I found out about later, because somewhere I had heard a rumor that, that Bill Gates had sent um, Apple to, to do this to Digital Research talking to uh, Bill, and I said, so Bill, did you do this? You know, I'd heard that you sent Apple to Pester, and, and he owned up to it, he was, and he certainly didn't lie about it. He said, yeah, no, they came over bugging me about the UI, and I said, well, Windows is kind of like the Macintosh, but what's really like the Macintosh is Jim at Digital Research. Why don't you go hassle them for a while? And that's exactly what he did, and it probably bought him a six months of not worrying, because the, the thought process was if they establish a precedent that Apple owns the UI and can put a company like Digital Research out of business or whatever, make them shut down their UI, then that will have proven the legal case and then maybe, maybe Bill would listen to Steve about making Windows you know, less like the Macintosh. Mm -hmm. But 
anyway. I don't think, or it was just a delaying tactic on Bill's part. It was very effective. But. This next quote is not about Apple. He's talking about overlapping versus tiled windows, but it's too good a quote and too easily applied to this situation not to include here. So what I said was, I said, well, this is kind of like in the Amazon in South America. You know, when they have a herd of cattle that they want to get across the river, but they're worried about the piranha, they mm -hmm. take the oldest, weakest oh. uh, <laughs> cow, and they take him, take him or her, whatever cow, I guess her, upstream, and they send that cow across the river first. And so all the piranhas in that area, they go and they latch onto that cow, and they're able to get the whole herd across without, uh, without a problem. And I said, so, after having told that story, I said, that's essentially what Microsoft is doing. Don't you guys see what's happening? They're, they're focusing all this attention on, that's their like sick cow, and all the press is writing about that, and that, look what's happening. They've already dominated the character OS, now they're gonna have the graphical OS as well, and they're gonna get that all the way across the river, and no one's even focusing on, do we really want Microsoft to have control of that? And obviously we thought digital research should have control of the graphical operating system, at least, at least be one of the contenders there. Cadmus, a Massachusetts-based workstation company, demonstrated Mac applications running on its workstations in 1986. Apple quietly acquired that company, which over time disappeared from sight. Outbound Systems, which, like Dynamac and Colby, uses Mac ROM chips for its portable, seems to have gotten a little too good. Like Cadmus, Outbound is now entangled in a confidential and complex agreement with Apple. Clearly, Apple's consistent strategy has been to bring lawsuits to protect its rights as soon as products such as these are brought to market. This suggests that New Tech and others are in for legal action. Market share is the focus. John Scully took a beating from the press, analysts, users, and vendors for neglecting to increase Apple's share of the personal computer market. Scully seems to have taken these criticisms to heart. Expanding the Mac's installed base has become increasingly important in Apple's strategic thinking. Scully's belief that the company had to produce cheaper computers for a mass market is verified by the Mac Classic's wild success. Market share growth is now a guiding principle in the thinking of Apple executives. But Apple's ability to manufacture more machines is saturated. The company is up to four shifts at its plant in Singapore. Apple cannot increase its speed without diminishing profitability on products that already have lower profit margins than any computer the company has manufactured to date. Licensing the Mac OS Another request has been that Apple license its operating system to third-party manufacturers. This would create a larger set of developer opportunities expand the number of Macintoshes sold in the personal computer market, and therefore increase Apple's market share. By late 1990, Apple executives were reconciled to the concept. According to Michael Spindler, chief operating officer of Apple, it is not a question of whether Apple will license its operating system, but how it will do this. Apple will have no difficulty finding partners to manufacture Macs. The difficulty lies in finding a partner pliable enough to adhere to all of the restrictions that Apple desires, restrictions that leave the development of technology in the hands of Apple while distributing the work of selling Macs to its licensed resellers. Steve Jobs at his WWDC 1997 question and answer session. I believe Apple should license everything, with a few exceptions that I'll go into in a minute. 
And I think the clone setup, the way it was set up, was done really poorly in, you know, three, four years ago. For one thing, Apple licenses the hardware designs and forces the clone makers to use them. That's stupid. Let the clone makers do their own hardware designs. Let them do whatever hardware they want, right? Don't tie their hands. But then again, don't give away. I mean, if they, want to, if they want to OEM Apple hardware and pay extra for that, if they want to use Apple hardware, fine. But if they don't, let them design their own. Apple has already experienced what it's like to lose technological leadership with its own machines. The bitter struggle with Adobe over type and printing technology is a recent example. This suggests Apple will eventually pick, as a partner, either a company too big and lethargic to develop a computer technology of its own, perhaps not even a computer manufacturer, or a smaller company that Apple can dominate. Apple views new tech. On the surface, Apple appears placid about new tech's announcement. Behind this facade lies a sophisticated strategy. Apple works non-stop to keep the lid on responses regarding potential competition and to prevent the company's executives from being seen as bad guys when Apple takes its possible competitors to court. Internally, the reaction of Apple staffers to the new tech announcement is an incredulous, stunned disbelief. Big as Apple is, the company must recognize that in the face of a determined competitor, Apple cannot stop a clone any more than IBM could. At the moment, however, company spokespeople will not even admit that there is any similarity between what Compaq, Phoenix, and Chips and Technologies did in the IBM PC market and what NewTek and others may eventually achieve in the Mac market. Once the OEM manufacturers of Macintosh compatibles are announced, Apple can be expected to adopt a fallback position, that is, to claim that customers will want a true Macintosh because only Apple, or its authorized licensees, can provide access to breakthrough technology, and there may be veiled allusions to compatibility problems with clones. What happens to Apple after clones? Apple will have an increasingly difficult time trying to reconcile growing research and development expenditures with declining profit margins. Competition from Mac compatibles will dictate that Apple lead the market via technology rather than via marketing. Apple may begin to lose very profitable segments of its own market, such as peripherals. While the company has stiff competition from peripheral vendors at present, it can be expected to become worse. Over time, the Apple logo will be no more important in the mass market than the IBM logo. As Mac compatibles begin to proliferate, prices will tumble. The second piece of Apple's business to crumble will be the stranglehold on the market channel it has through the authorization of dealers. Suddenly, Apple-authorized dealers will face competitors selling Macintosh capability at 30% to 50% less. Mail-order vendors will introduce compatibles at cutthroat rates, taking away even more Apple revenues and constricting the amount of money Apple can dedicate toward future products. Apple's OS is the key. It is easy to predict that the Mac market might duplicate IBM's, with compatible vendors actually producing higher-performance computers for less money. The big difference, of course, is that Apple writes its own operating system while IBM licenses its OS from Microsoft. The question, then, 
is can Apple continue to lead its market with its own operating system after the release of Mac compatibles? It should come as no surprise that Apple has yet another version of its operating system underway, a non-quick-draw version. The company could introduce this new operating system in order to chill competition. But a new OS is likely to require a major change within the Mac-installed base, and such an introduction might only increase the confusion. On the other hand, NewTek is already saying that it will not write software to emulate the Mac's 7.0 operating system until 7.0 has been shipping for some while. Yet another version of the Mac OS could be a hurdle that compatible manufacturers might not overcome. What does it all mean? NewTek is gambling that it has enough engineering expertise to unravel the Macintosh's complex environment that the company has mitigated potential legal hassles by carefully adhering to classic clean-room development techniques, and that the company has the financial clout necessary to withstand any litigation that might ensue anyway. Manufacturers of new tech-based machines will have to gamble that buyers are willing to trade less-than-perfect software and hardware compatibility for lower prices and a few enhancements. And these companies will have to trust that NewTek will, in fact, indemnify them should Apple choose to sue. The real concern for Macintosh users and developers should be how Apple responds. As Adobe Systems President John Warnock puts it, there are two choices for Apple. Either stand and defend your turf, or be creative and stay ahead. In this day and age, standing in some intractable stance, a defensive position, is doomed to failure. New Tech's Legal Strategy by Deborah Branscombe According to legal experts, any company that wants to build a Macintosh-compatible computer needs three things. A detailed legal blueprint for avoiding Apple's intellectual property rights, scrupulous documentation of its independent development effort, and buckets of money to defend itself in court. New Tech Computers may be the first company to meet all three requirements. In compatibility cases, there are user interface copyright issues, software code copyright issues, and patent issues. Some Macintosh software, such as the user interface and the OS inscribed in ROM chips, is copyrighted, while some Mac processes, such as QuickDraw's region clipping procedure, are patented. According to Apple, there are more than 60 patents on the Macintosh. NewTek claims the U.S. Patent Office lists fewer than 25. A copyright protects the expression or description of an idea, but not the idea itself, while a patent generally protects any useful, innovative invention, process, or machine. NewTek sidestepped the user interface copyright issue by licensing the Motif interface from the Open Software Foundation. Motif is based in part on New Wave, a user interface from Hewlett-Packard that Apple claims infringes its copyright. But as a licensee, NewTek is not responsible for any resulting legal issues if Apple should win its suit against HP. It didn't. Still, significant software code copyright and patent issues remain. In the early 1980s, IBM PC-compatible makers employed clean-room procedures to convince courts that the makers had no access to IBM's code and that they independently developed their products. Clean-room procedures vary. 
One setup is described in Software Copyright and Competition, Quorum Books, 1989. As described by author Anthony Lawrence Klapes, a group of experienced analysts study the target program to determine its functions, and then write a detailed specification explaining how the program must perform, but not indicating how the code should be written. The company then hires programmers who have not had any previous contact with the target program. The programmers work only from the list of specifications, while the company maintains an audit trail of documentation, including mistakes made along the way, as evidence that the programmer's work is original. Newtech roughly duplicated that process under the tutelage of G. Gervais Davis III, a respected computer copyright specialist with Schroeder, Davis, and Orlis of Monterey, California. Computer history buffs will again recognize that name from Triumph of the Nerds. The men from IBM came to this Victorian house in Pacific Grove, California, headquarters of digital research headed by Gary and Dorothy Kildall. She did what her job was. She got the lawyer to look at the non-disclosure. The lawyer, uh, Jerry Davis, who's still in Monterey, uh, threw up on this uh, non-disclosure. It was uncomfortable for IBM. They weren't used to being waiting, and, and, and it was an unfortunate situation. Newtech developed its operating system software and chipset by carefully looking at the design of the Macintosh and at publicly available documentation such as the Inside Macintosh series of books. Then, Newtech claims, its team of engineers duplicated the Macintosh's function by using newer technology and different processes. The company refused to hire former employees of Apple in an attempt to avoid trade secret issues did a worldwide search for Apple's existing patents, and archived its weekly source code development. According to Davis, a, quote, person who should know compared the resulting code with Apple's original and said the two are significantly different, and none of Apple's patents are infringed, according to Davis, who says NewTek's algorithm for graphic region clipping, for example, differs significantly. Even if NewTek has done all its legal homework, it may still be vulnerable if Apple sues. Since patents that have not been issued are not made public, Apple could conceivably have some pending applications that NewTek would have no way of knowing about. One attorney, however, thinks that is unlikely. It's reasonable to assume that any hardware or patentable aspect of the original Macintosh that isn't patented by now probably is not going to be says Ron Laurie, who heads the computer law group of Irel and Manila in Menlo Park, California. So the patent issue involves a calculated gamble. What about copyright? If you're building a compatible product, you've got to look at something, according to Laurie. You cannot independently create a compatible product. It's an oxymoron. New Tech looked at Inside Macintosh, which does not have any code in it. I think Macworld meant to say Inside Macintosh does not contain any ROM code listings. Still, Apple might argue that Inside Macintosh has a high-level description of the program, the Macintosh ROMs, and that by looking at it, NewTek infringed Apple's copyright. Laurie, however, doesn't think that would be a good argument. As a practical matter, if Apple does sue, NewTek will bear the burden of proving in court that it did not infringe Apple's copyrights, patents, trademarks, or trade secrets. Quote, Courts, like most people on the street, think that it's not nice to exploit the fruits of somebody else's labors, 
says Stephen J. Davidson, a Minneapolis attorney who specializes in computer technology issues. New tech should be able to counter that bias by showing how much time, money, and effort went into independently developing the Mac compatible. That way, according to Davidson, you can go to the court and say, look, these people didn't rip off something Apple had done. These people invested a zillion dollars and a lot of hours and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in developing a competitive product. New Tech likes to compare itself to Compaq, the pioneering IBM PC compatible maker that made a bundle off its compatible machines. Apple isn't convinced. A spokesman for the company would not comment specifically about New Tech, but notes that when it comes to the Macintosh, quote, there are copyrights, trademarks, and patents that do not relate to Intel-based clones. In the absence of a business arrangement, he says, quote, there are no legal Macintosh clones or compatibles. We believe that you cannot clone a Macintosh without violating our intellectual property, and, as you know, Apple aggressively defends its intellectual property. New Tech hopes to avoid litigation, but is prepared to go to court. This company is funded by a group of investors who understood from the beginning that litigation might be a problem, says New Tech's attorney Davis. An expensive problem, according to attorneys, who estimate that the burn rate for this kind of litigation could be several million dollars per year for both Apple and New Tech. Apple could decide not to sue New Tech, but to go after any hardware company that builds Macintosh-compatible machines based on New Tech's products. If Apple gets really litigious, they can scare a lot of the market away, according to one source, who asked not to be identified. The key is who's going to dare to be the first one to build a Mac clone, the person willing to go out and take some arrows in the back. New Tech hopes to protect its potential customers by indemnifying them against potential litigation by Apple. No one knows if that will be enough to reassure hardware companies and actually spur a new market. But there's plenty of speculation. This is potentially an earth-shaking development, not only in the industry, but also in the Mac market, says Davidson. If these people have done this right, I expect they'll be sitting on a gold mine.